Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. You're listening to Firearms Cafe. I'm your host, Tony Brown. Today is Saturday, the 16th of January, 2010. Alright, let's go ahead and jump right in. A couple of episodes back, I started the series on what I was going to call the court series, where I was just going to try and explain what happens once you go to court and what maybe you could expect. Now, on that last episode where we dealt with the quarter and the court series, I talked about if you get charged or arrested by the police, how does it go from them taking a report to you ending up in front of a judge or jury? And basically, what happens is the police take a report, it then is sent to whatever local uh, prosecutor's office that there is in your area. And that could be anything from the county attorney's office, the district attorney, the city prosecutor. They'll all have different names, but they all pretty much do the exact same thing. What they do is they look at the report, they try and determine whether or not that there was uh, any criminal intent that would not be justifiable or covered by law. So obviously, let's say if you were involved in a in a self-defense situation where you pointed a gun at somebody, you didn't shoot them, but you pointed a gun at somebody to get them to stop. They're going to look at that report and say, well, yeah, it's against the law to point a gun at someone. However, they were doing it to come to the aid of either themselves or uh, their family member, or a person who was likely to be uh, to suffer, you know, grievous bodily injury or you know, possible death. So it's not that they're looking at something that's based solely, and they're focused on something that's solely a legal or illegal action. So one versus the other, but they try and do look at it in context. And I know that a lot of the stories we hear, the ones that are going to be, let's say, the headline makers, are ones where the prosecutor's office clearly has an axe to grind and clearly is going forward on political motivations and to either further their own career or to get prestige for their office. That happens a lot less than you would think. And the reason that that happens very rarely is because they're so overwhelmed by other stuff that they're not really going to have time, for the most part, to go on personal crusades. And that's not, not to say, again, that that doesn't happen. We've seen it happen on several occasions. But if you look at all the cases that come through you know, in the course of a year, there are thousands and thousands of cases that come through, and uh, very rarely do they get pushed way up for political reasons, or they get brought up to that forefront for political reasons. So again, if we look at who's going to be inside that courtroom, and that's what we'll we'll talk about when we come back from a kind of a little mini break here. First, let's go ahead and uh, we'll take a step back from, from this stuff, and let's go ahead and do my contact info. If you'd like to contact me, there's a couple of different ways that you can do that. Um, the easiest way would be just to drop me an email. Uh, you can send an MP3 if you'd like something played on the show. And the email address is firearmscafe at gmail.com. Again, that's all one word, firearmscafe at gmail.com. Remember, I also have a voicemail now, and that number is 
206-339-3266. Again, that number is 206-339-3266. And what I'll do is I'll go ahead and play the voicemails that I got from last time. Oh, I didn't get nothing. Oh, well, maybe next time. Don't forget that there are plenty of other shows over at the Gun Rights Radio Network, which I'm a member of. So if my show isn't your cup of tea, and apparently from the response that I got, it's not anybody's cup of tea. Well, that's too freaking bad! There are tons of shows over there. I think we've got something like 15 or 16 podcasts now, separate individual podcasts over there. So there's going to be something that you like. So go ahead and head over there and check out a few of the shows. We've talked a little bit about what the prosecutor's office is and the different kinds of names that they can have and what it is that they do. So they have taken the police report, they've looked at it, they've decided that there is something there that they feel that you did. And if we look at it in a self-defense situation, they may say, well, we're not uh, saying that you weren't within your rights to defend yourself or even to shoot that person or to do such and such, but maybe you took it too far. Maybe you uh, placed yourself in that situation because of earlier actions that you you had done before. And a prime example of this type of thing, and it's something that I'm sure a lot of people are going to disagree with, but is when, let's say that if you were driving down the road and you saw somebody and they were breaking into you know, a sheet metal company or something like that. And you could tell that they, you know, they had, uh, let's say you saw them kick down the gate or something and they're, and you're, you're sort of parked across the street where they can't see you. And you call the police and you say, Hey, there's these people and they're over in this gray Chevy truck and they're loading all this stuff from this company. Here's where I'm at. Here's their license plate. And they say, okay, we'll send somebody. And then during the course of that conversation, they take off. They get in their vehicle and they leave. And you decide to follow them. And then for whatever reason, they pick up that you're following them. They see that you're maybe still on the phone with 911. And they pull over. Now, the smart thing to do would be for you to just keep driving. And there's been cases where other people have, they'll follow people. When the person that they're following pulls over, then they pull over. And then the criminal gets out of his vehicle and walks up to you and either makes threats. And, and so you feel threatened. You feel that, uh, that maybe the guy's trying to pull you out of your, your vehicle. And it ends up that you had to shoot the guy because it had escalated to a point there where you, know, you are in actual physical danger of your life or facing you know, extreme injury. And you end up shooting that guy and you kill him. Well, what the attorneys, the uh, prosecutor's office or district attorney's office may say is, at that moment in time when that guy was trying to yank you out of your car and was saying he was going to kill you or he had busted in your window and was pulling you out and you thought you were going to get killed or you thought that you were going to suffer these you know, massive injuries that could possibly lead to death, we understand that at that point, you were, yeah, you were in actual fear for your life. However, 
you had really no reason once you had called the police to follow, number one, to follow these guys. And then when they pulled over, why in the world did you pull over? It must have been that you actually wanted to shoot them. You were hoping that they would pull over. You were hoping that there would be a confrontation. And you were hoping that you were going to be able to pull out your gun and shoot them because that's the reason that you carry a gun. And if you've got a, pro- a prosecutor who that's their mindset, now especially if you were in a, you know, an anti-gun county, and we've, we've talked about this before, how, and I'd mentioned this on a previous show, how that you could have a guy who lives, uh, or a prosecutor whose jurisdiction is Maricopa County, and in that same situation, he's like, well you know, uh, there's really nothing here to go on. It was clearly a self-defense situation. But the guy who is up in Mojave County, where this took place, well, he feels there's no way that that should have taken place. You never should have followed that guy in the first place. So your actions caused the death of another another person, and we're going to prosecute you on that. And we may not prosecute you for murder, but we're going to get you on, you know, um, manslaughter or this or that either way they're going to try and put you in jail for for a quite a long time and i'll take a little bit of an aside here and say that things like this happen all the time a a real good case is something that happened to i think his name was harold fish a guy here in arizona and you can google his name and you can get his story Um, on one of the uh, i think it was the West Coast edition of of uh, Gun Rights News. They talked about a story about a guy who had, and it was real similar to the thing I had said. He'd observed a bro uh, a break in, followed the guys. He pulled the uh, the guys noticed him following them. He uh, they pulled over, and then he pulled over. An altercation ensued where he had to shoot the the person. And yeah, you know, and this is where, you know, I know I'd asked earlier for some voicemail or for some emails, and I'm sure I'll get some now. But in my opinion, he shouldn't have involved himself to the level at which he did. Meaning that once he reported the crime, if he was able to get their license plate and all this other stuff, let it go from that. Is protecting somebody's, you know pile of sheet metal is that going to be worth a possibility of you losing your home of you losing your family of maybe you going to jail for a number of years and when you get out now you're a convicted felon you can't own or possess any firearms is that stuff worth it and some people are going to counter back and say well look you've got to get involved if people don't get involved crime's going to run rampant and blah 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 And I understand that. And I'm not saying that if you saw a crime, that you shouldn't report it, that you shouldn't become involved in that level. But it's not a smart idea to involve yourself when you see somebody, if you you know that they're taking something, and if you start to follow them, you're basically putting yourself in a situation that, for the most part, is just going to go bad. You're, you're at that point, in my opinion, you're asking for trouble. And some people would ask me, well, when would I become involved? When would I involve myself more like in a personal level? And let's say that it was that same scenario. I saw somebody breaking into um, a place where they sell swamp coolers and they're, and they're loading junk over there and I can tell that they're breaking in. Well, I'll call the police, but I'm not going to go follow those guys. 
And if they spotted me and started to come over, I'm in a vehicle, I'm going to drive away as fast as I can. And if they get away with some businessman's swamp cooler, I don't care. That guy's got insurance. It'll be replaced. If you listen to all the, the premier trainers of today, if you listen to guys like Masad Ayub, if you listen to guys like Clint Smith, Rob Pincus, Mike Janich, if you listen to guys like Michael Bain, overwhelmingly those guys say in, these, in that type of a situation, be a good witness. And for those people that say, you know, if I if I saw somebody breaking into a, somebody's car doing this or doing that, I'd confront them. And that's what you need to do to stop crime. Well, I don't know how really sincere those people are that make that argument. Because I can take you right now to a place where there is drugs being sold, where there's crack houses, where there's prostitution, where there's all sorts of crime going down. And I can point those people out to you and say, I guarantee you, within probably a week, that guy is going to hurt somebody or that guy is going to cause a crime. Why don't you go up and stop him? I can take you to places where there'll be drug transactions and you can watch them. Why don't you go up and stop them? And you would say, well, I'm not going to do that. That would be stupid to involve myself in that because it's only going to lead to something bad. I'm probably going to get shot or have to do them. It'd be better for me if I called the police. And you know, maybe they are sincere in that belief or in that wanting to make the world a safer place. But really, it's not very well thought out. You don't carry a gun and you don't arm yourself to go out and protect the neighborhood. And at least for me, the reason that I carry a gun is that if somebody is trying to kill me, or if somebody is trying to take a member of my family away from me, or someone has broken into my home, and then I am going to be involved. But I don't carry a, a firearm so that I can go out and, and be a protector for the world at large. If you want to do something like that, go get into law enforcement, and then you can do something like that. But as an armed citizen, we don't carry guns to save the world. We carry a gun so that we actually give ourselves an option or at least a chance to survive an encounter with a bad guy. Well, I'm starting to get off on a, on a tangent where I don't want to go with this particular episode. But what I'm saying is that I'm not against somebody getting involved, but you need to understand the level at which you should involve yourself. And you need to think about these things. And so often, there's a lot of heartache and a lot of things that happens to people when maybe their intent is good, but they haven't thought things through. They don't have a plan. They don't understand what can happen. Well, anyway, let's just go ahead and we'll, we'll get back to kind of Who's in that courtroom with you? Again, you've got the prosecutor, and they're going to try and, and uh, find you guilty or, or make the case to the judge or the jury that you have uh, committed a crime in some manner. And on your side of the fence, so to speak, you're going to have a defense attorney, and that is going to be a person that you have either gone out and hired, so they're, they're private counsel, or it may be a person that um, has been appointed to you by the court so they're going to be a public defender and 
therein is a little bit of a debate. Some people say that public defender, that's the, the worst possible thing that you can do. You need to go out and spend whatever money you can get and scrape together, do whatever you have to do, but buy the best defense attorney that you can possibly buy, that you can possibly hire to represent you. And in general, I would agree with that statement. And this isn't to say anything bad about the public defender's office. But by going that route of the public defender's office, you're really going to get luck of the draw. You could get the guy who is a 20-year veteran and who is a what we used to call kind of a true believer. And so they are going to do everything. They're going to stay up nights worrying about your case, and they're going to try and make sure that you get the best possible representation that you can get. Or you may get that guy who it's going to be his first big case on his own. And he may make some mistakes that he's not going to make five years down the road. Or you may get that guy again. It's, he's been on there with the public defender's office for 25 years. He's retiring next year. He's burned out. He doesn't give a crap anymore. So, you know, he'll try and defend you, but he's not going to lose much sleep over it. And that's the reason why I say if you can go out, you need to get the, the most bulldogish, pit bullish kind of attorney that you can get to represent you in that and you need to spend spend everything you got because the alternative is not going to be something you want to have happen now a question that may arise from some of this stuff is you may say well what are the public defender's credentials or what are the guy who is the prosecutor's office what are their credentials how did they get that job And most of them will, once they've gone and graduated from law school, they'll uh, interview and hire on just like any other thing. A lot of times what they'll do, uh, at least what I saw, was when a new either public defender or a new uh, county attorney came in on the scene, they would shadow a more experienced or a senior attorney for a couple of weeks. Then during the next couple of weeks or so, they uh, will start to take over slowly on some of the cases, and then that senior attorney will shadow them eventually then they'll be kind of out on their own uh, and again it, it may be more or less than than a couple of weeks per uh, shadowing session so to speak uh, but eventually they'll do that now i had spoken earlier about sometimes that the public defender gets kind of a bad rap in my experience in juvenile court and again remember juvenile court is going to be much different than adult court so that the procedures, the way that they do things, the way evidence is presented, the way probable cause is found, a lot of those things are, are going to be different. Um, and again, the legal proceedings, how things go down, are different than in adult court. So that, let's say that, that your kid ends up going to juvenile court on a charge, uh, shoplifting, auto theft, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, A lot of times, you're going to be better off sticking with a public defender in that realm. The reason is, is that there aren't that many people in the private sector that are going to practice juvenile law. Um, Usually, if if they're going to be criminal defense, they're going to go the adult route. The public defenders in the juvenile system deal with this stuff every day. So they know all the procedures. They know all the kind of the ins and outs. They also know all the players. So they know 
the uh, judges, they know the uh, all the prosecutors, they know all those guys, and they know what's going on. So if you ever found yourself uh, going to court with your kid, my advice would be to uh, go ahead and stick with the public defender that you get. Like I said, they're going to have the experience. They're going to know all the ins and outs. I had seen several times over my, my career there that parents would go out and hire a friend of theirs or they would hire a guy who was uh, on the recommendation who was a criminal attorney. But again, that guy would come into the juvenile system and wouldn't know which end was up. And a lot of times they would end up doing more harm than good, especially if they went in there and were kind of trying to be a big shot. They would get shut down. And again, you know, that's something that isn't really mentioned a lot or isn't talked about a lot is everybody sort of has their own personality. And everybody, some of those personalities are bigger than life. Some of them are pretty laid back. And sometimes in a court situation, you want to have an attorney who's got that bigger-than-life personality who can go into a place and dominate something. Sometimes that can turn out bad for you because if you've, if you've got a person, let's say your defense attorney is one of these bigger-than-life guys, he may go in there and step over all the wrong toes. Um, so again, you need to have... There's a difference between having an attorney who is aggressive and will be assertive and really go to bat for you as opposed to getting one who is arrogant who is really full of themselves and how you differentiate or how you find out like who who was who that's the homework and the things that you need to do prior to you ever becoming involved in any type of a court situation again if we go back and look at what a lot of the the, the preeminent trainers say is you need to have a good criminal defense attorney, a person who knows uh, self-defense laws. And I'll, I'm bringing it back to this just to take it kind of back into our realm. You've got to have people that know those laws, that are going to be aggressive, that are going to fight for you, but that also know how to interact in that system. So you don't want to get your brother-in-law, who is a tax attorney now, and 20 years ago, maybe practiced at, at the county attorney's level for a year and decided he hated it. You know, you got to get somebody who knows the ins and outs, who knows the ups and downs. And I know I'm kind of restating this stuff over and over, but it is very, very important. Uh, if you ever do find yourself in that situation, you, like I said, in, in a, in a self-defense situation, if I were involved in that, I would want to hire a person who had experience in defending um, other people who were involved in self-defense situations and they're going to know how to proceed with that case. You don't want somebody coming in there who is a contract attorney and is going to give you a discount on the price. All right, so let's move on to that kind of that final big guy who's in there and that's going to be the judge. So that's going to be the man or the woman who's sitting up in there in the black robes. Um, as far as how a person becomes a judge, most of them will, they'll, well, they'll pretty much all have been attorneys, whether they'll have practiced you know, as a county attorney or as a public defender or as a, as a private counsel, uh, as a criminal defense attorney, they'll have some background. There are, um, they can apply for a judgeship or a commissionership, and then they go through, and I'm not 100% clear on all the hoops and, and 
things that they have to go through and all the red tape. But basically they do interviews with other judges and do other things. And then uh, if they, I guess, think that that person has what it takes, they'll be offered uh, maybe that judgeship or that thing, which is a commissioner. The way that I saw it done a lot of times in juvenile court was, let's say if somebody had been a, a public defender or a county attorney for a few years, what they'll start to do is they'll do they'll be a judge pro tem, which basically means that they come in, they'll take some training, then they'll come in and they'll start to hear cases, they'll volunteer. So if there's a uh, overflow on the on the on the calendar, if there as as one of the judges is out sick, um, or I had talked before about detention reviews, a lot of times they'll do uh, and what that is if somebody was brought in the night before or earlier that morning they'll hear that case on whether they're going to decide to keep them or release them and a lot of times they'll have those pro tems and the judges who are being the volunteers will go ahead and hear a lot of those once they get experience from that then they may then say well i want to go ahead and try and make judge or or make a commissioner Um, and judges and commissioners are different i won't go into what those differences are too much the one thing you have to understand about judges, and I've, I've seen this happen many times, once a person is a judge, that courtroom is basically their little kingdom. They have a lot of leeway in there. Even if you have things like minimum uh, sentences that they would have to give out. Sentencing is only one part of a, some, of a thing that a judge does. There's a lot of leeway there's a lot of power that that person has leading up to sentencing uh, sentencing excuse me in effect that judge has quite a bit of power and quite a bit of influence on what's going to happen in the court he's going to he or she i should say they're going to be the ones that ultimately will decide this piece of evidence will be allowed in this is what the jury is going to hear or this is what the jury is not going to hear. And if you have a judge who is very anti-gun, he may not allow a certain piece of evidence or uh, certain questions even to be asked. Um, It also has to do with when either side will have an objection, that judge is the person who decides okay, that, you know, that's not going to be allowed. You have to discontinue this questioning or no, go ahead. You can do that. And so you can see if that guy is biased one way or the other. And of course, they're not supposed to be. But as we all know, they're human and some of them have a, some of them have an agenda that they want to push. And we would call that sometimes they would advocate from the bench and usually the attorney is what is called your advocate so they're the person who goes up and argues for you and sometimes if you get a judge who wants to steer the prosecution in a certain way or wants to steer the defense in a certain way to make sure that certain questions get answered they will do that they'll say well counselor why don't you rephrase the question this way or think about what you're saying and and so a lot of times again they can steer the stuff in a in a they can steer the outcome of the court in a direction that they want to especially if they're savvy and they've been around for a while uh, but also like i said once inside that courtroom and once once they have that judgeship they're pretty much 
in that in that courtroom setting, they're the big they're the big honcho. They're the guy that has the final say. Now you've heard a lot of times they'll talk about an appeal, and an appeal isn't so much that you don't like what the outcome of the court was, although that's that's what you're really doing. A lot of times when the judge at the end of court says you have so many days to appeal my decision, what they're not talking about is that you think that his outcome was unfair, his or her outcome or ruling was unfair. What they're talking about is if you felt or if you and your attorneys felt that a certain piece of evidence wasn't allowed when it should have been uh, or that something from a procedural context that should have happened didn't happen uh, or that a certain procedural context that was allowed to happen did not. And so usually the appeals process, it starts off with the, the attorney will file an appeal basically giving you know X amount of reasons. And the way that it went in the juvenile court was if that was done, a lot of times you have another judge or a different judge who's going to look at the case and base it on, on and look at the merits of that case. And they may or may not say, you know, I think some procedures weren't followed or I think this evidence should be allowed and then it can kind of go from there. But a lot of times people have the, uh, the concept that the appeal is if you just didn't like the outcome, which really is, is in essence is what it is. But a lot of times what it was designed to do is that, again, if you had that judge that was going to uh, advocate from the bench or try to do sometimes what we would call, they would try and issue out social justice. Um, and again, they would have certain political views or maybe political agendas that they would that they would push. Uh, or when they sentenced or did something, you know, maybe they were lenient on somebody when they should have been uh, a little bit harsher, or vice versa. Maybe they were way harsh on somebody when really they should have been quite lenient. Now, I'm sure that there are some attorneys out there who uh, are probably going to listen to this and say, no, 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 that isn't how it's done. But again, this came primarily from my experience uh, in the juvenile court and being a juvenile probation officer and probably from the 3,000 plus hearings that I was in, uh, that I personally was actually in and participated in. Of those, there's probably another maybe two, two to 3,000 again of hearings that happened where I actually wasn't in the courtroom, but that things things went on and did happen. Let me go ahead and clear that up a little bit. I think I got a little muddy there. There was approximately about 3,000, and again, I, I probably was actually in a little bit more hearings that I was actually in the courtroom and participating in. There was probably another two to 3,000 hearings that were I was involved or assigned to the case, but that I actually wasn't in the the courtroom on some of those cases. And on the next show, I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about what those individual hearings and things were. Uh, but for now, just I just wanted to kind of make that clear because I think I kind of muddied up the water a little bit when I was uh, talking about the number of hearings that I had been in. And again, like I said before, that. Some people may disagree or some attorneys may say, well, that's not how we do it here. But this stuff came from my experience in the uh, juvenile court center. And this was information that I got from talking to the county attorneys, talking to 
the public defenders, talking to judges. And a lot of this stuff was things that I observed personally. And maybe on the on the next show, I can relate some of the stories. I won't, of course, use anybody's real names or anything like that. But I can give you lots of examples of different things that happened during my time there. And this isn't to say that I'm giving you guys every detail or every nitty-gritty thing. But this can give you kind of an understanding it's getting to the point now. We're hitting um, a place where, again, I like to kind of wind the show down a little bit. So what we'll do is I think on the next show, and it'll be um, probably the last one on the court series that I'm going to do. And what I'll talk about on that show is some of the differences between adult court and juvenile court. And I'll also talk about what the hearings are. Uh, A lot of times when you go to court, you don't have just one appearance or it's not all just your trial. All right, let's go ahead and switch gears here a little bit. Remember, you need to join the NRA. You need to be a part of uh, your local and state organizations as far as for gun rights. Also, head over to uh, Eric Shelton's podcast, the Handgun Podcast, and get involved in the 6% program. Uh, that's something that's really worthwhile. And it's something where if you once you do get involved, and once you see how easy it is to become involved, you're going to be kicking yourself or saying, man, why didn't I do this sooner? We can make a difference. And sometimes that difference comes about when only 5 or 6 or maybe 10 of us write. And sometimes it takes the combined effort of all of us. So we need to have thousands of phone calls and thousands of letters and thousands of emails coming in to our elected officials. So again, get involved, contact your representatives, uh, contact your, your not only your uh, federal representatives, but your state and local guys as well. And don't forget this statement made by Feinstein. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California was the author and champion of the assault weapons ban in 1994. Senator Feinstein wants to reinstate the assault weapons ban. But what are her chances? She admits she's facing daunting opposition. I wouldn't bring it up now. So you're going to hold off? That's correct. And you, and I'll you pick the time and the place, no question about that. 